This podcast is sponsored by Adaptive Path. Adaptive Path helps to create products and services that deliver great experiences and improve people's lives. Learn about upcoming events like UX Week, the UX Intensive Workshop at adaptivepath.com slash events. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to promote thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Bjorn Hartman is a PhD candidate in human-computer interaction at Stanford University and editor-in-chief of Ambidextrous Magazine, Stanford's Journal of Design. His research focuses on design prototyping, physical computing, and user interface software tools. His prototyping tools have been used at companies such as Nokia, IDEO, Leapfrog, and Frog. We discuss his presentation entitled New Interactions, Enlightened Trial and Error, and how Bjorn is leading work in design tools for pervasive computing, sensory-based interactions, and designed by modifications. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. So Bjorn Hartman just gave a fascinating talk today at uh, MX called, um, entitled New Interactions and Enlightened Trial and Error, which I found really interesting. And you described, um, you started out by talking about basically three, three different ideas around how to create um, more, uh, I guess, more interactive and more intuitive tools for, for designers and for programmers trying to my, my, my take, how to bring these, these two fields together into something that, that makes sense. Um, and you were talking about, uh, about one of the tools that you had developed um, and around this idea of design, test, and analyze, this sort of circular process. Can you, can you describe for our listeners at Box and Arrows a little bit about, about the tool and, and that process? Sure. So yeah. that particular uh, tool is called D-Tools. And um, to maybe take a, take a step back as... Um, most of my work is on prototyping tools, and prototyping tools really should be regarded as a different beast altogether from development and production tools, because the goal is not to create a polished artifact mm -hmm. that you can then ship. The goal is just to gain insight and feedback about your ideas and letting that feedback drive the next iteration of the design. Right. So once you start to look at tools from that perspective, um, realize, well, there should be some way we can capture that feedback and let it feed directly back into the design cycle. And that's kind of where traditional tools have been lacking. So um, D-Tools is a, a for, yeah, for the initial use, really looks like a, a authoring or programming tool. It's a visual authoring tool based around the idea of storyboards <laughs> um, for creating new smart appliances, right. like build your own iPod, build your own Nintendo Wii, mm -hmm. and um, you have a graphical software model. Right. But once you've built a working prototype, you can sh then shift from design into test mode. And in test mode, we record using a video camera, um, a user test, maybe it's your, you know, the person down the hall, or maybe you actually bring someone in from, from outside to, to test your prototype to get that feedback. Now, we don't just record the video. At the same time, we also record all of the events that happen with your, with your prototype. Was the right menu uh, button clicked? Was the left button clicked? Okay. You know? yep. Was the volume slider moved? Right. Now, what that allows us then to do is after the fact, once you get around to analyzing what happened during that test, to really rapidly index into your video. So you can just click on a state in your visual model and say, show me all the video snippets 
where my tester was in that state in my software model. Right. Or you can pan anywhere through, um, the, through the timeline of the video and see a visualization back in your software model. This is where we were at 349 during test one. Wow. Really, yeah, and so in terms of building solutions, that really helps. It gets down to the, the granular details as well in terms of creating prototypes that are very effective for people, right? Because you don't, you've got that sort of that rich detail in the data to help you understand, okay, well, you know, at 340, at 3 minutes and 43 seconds or whatever, this is where they're at, and maybe all the other factors surrounding that that might have caused that to either work or not work. Exactly. So looking at being able to rapidly index into the video is priceless in figuring out what exactly happened after the fact. Because during the test, there are only so many notes you can take. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And so for that reason, traditionally, most usability tests are videotaped. However, without an efficient interface to index back into that video, it's prohibitively expensive in terms of uh, person hours right. to find the right five or 10 second snippet that brings your point across. Yeah. Uh, that also brings up the point there are multiple functions of, of these videos, right? Sure. It's both to find usability breakdowns, things you hadn't, uh, that you hadn't expected, that you can revisit in detail, but in, your task may also just be, I need to make the 15-second highlight roll of what happened during this test. Right. to show to my design team who weren't there during the test. Right, and the video may be five hours long, but you only need that one snippet to be able to show it to the design team. Exactly. As an example. One of, one of, the, thing, one of the points that you brought up um, that I thought was really interesting is that designing for interactivity, interactive behavior excuse me, is difficult um, in things like Flash. Right, because, we don't, because, we, because a lot of the interactivity is based on the code, or in Flash, action script. Right? And you don't think of action script as design. Per se, right? And so, how do you how do you go about resolving that resolving that problem in, in terms of creating useful applications, especially even from a and from a human factors perspective, right? Because again, we're building these tools for other people, not other machines, right? Right. So, what I've noticed in working with uh, with design consultants and design teams over the last couple of years is that there's certainly a shift going on in the understanding of what the tool set is that that an interaction designer brings to the table. Right. Um, almost everyone nowadays will have had some exposure to computer science and is comfortable, well, maybe not comfortable, but will <laughs> deal with the fact that they have to write 50 lines of code yeah. to get the right behavior yeah. out there. Now, um, that doesn't mean that authoring behavior in code is ideal. So right. there are visual tools uh, like DTools uh, based on storyboards that can help you get the uh, the rough outline out. Right. And that already helps tremendously that you don't have to sweat the details in code. Exactly. However, you know... <laughs> There's always I, a however in this, right? There's always, that human element always, always buggers yeah. things up. I, I would love to be able to tell you, you know, and all the code will go away in, by 2009. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but that's not really true because, you know, the flexibility of t textual code has, you know, that power is here to stay. So really um, what the challenge of many design tools going forward is, is to how to best integrate disparate views, visual views, textural code views, into one fluid authoring experience. It's almost like you're trying to capture the, the experience and the mental model of all the different backgrounds and professions and then amalgamate them. It's sort of, it's like sort of the, the output that I got from, from your presentation and your ideas, right? And, and how to do that effectively, because we all have our own experiences, which drives our perspective and our, and our interpretation of how to do things. 
We can all draw a picture and say everybody design this and they can do it, but the process is all different. Yeah, and I think you, you see a realization um, of that in some of the commercial product lines that are now hitting the shelves. For example, the Microsoft Expressions line and also Adobe Flex has a very uh, conscious separation between declarative design of the visuals on the one hand and then the backhand behavior on the other hand, which was not really around um, in that form before, but what really that really highlights is the the problematic of well, what happens at the interface of of, of those two? Yeah. You know, if if you're a one man crack team and you're doing both the design and the coding, mm -hmm. then you probably don't have to worry about that. How, however, design really is what teams do, not what you do alone. So. Um, yeah. I, I saw a demonstration of Flex about a year ago, actually, just before it was about to come out, and uh, it's pretty amazing, right? Just grabbing objects, dragging and dropping them on the screen, and the code gets generated right beside it. So, you know, it becomes to the point where I was looking at that going, that's, that's incredible. Like, I mean, you literally do not, if you can have someone create the objects for you, you literally, they're, they're proposing, I don't know where they're at with the technology just yet, but you can literally not have to know any code at all. Right in terms of building applications or building web services or these kinds of things, which is a huge step forward in terms of user experience and usability and potentially bringing these design teams together along with the programmers and other people as well. I think that's a trend that's really been driven by web authoring applications. So think back to Greenweaver that yeah. did the same thing for mostly static pages where you could visually design and then go back to the code and then go... So those kind of tools, that you know, the, the value of that is now being pushed back into interaction design tools that are not necessarily targeted at the browser. Right. Um, the challenge that any such tools have is, you know, if you do this generation of, um, of sophisticated structures underneath the hood and you go back and forth between these representations, what happens when they break down? Of course. Yeah. And that's getting to the foundation of the, you know, what happens, right? Why do systems crash? Why do these applications not work? Is it, a, is it a programming error? Is it a user experience problem? Is that people aren't using the tool properly? And then, you know, you, have, you can't blame the tool. I mean, the tool is designed to do what it's designed to do, right? And people are working with the, the parameters of it. Uh, Christina Woodkey at Boxes and Aerostock talked with uh, Josh Porter um, recently at South by Southwest. And they, they were talking about that in terms of breaking rules on, on, uh, on dig, how the top diggers would just dig themselves, right, to get look. But, you know, do you blame the people or do you blame the way the application is designed? Because the application is designed in such a way that says, well, if I do this, I'll get promoted to the top of the pile. So is it the person's problem or is it the application's problem? I don't think you need, you need to blame anyone in this situation. I'd rather frame it as, you know, here's a great opportunity to keep research busy for the next couple of years to, uh, to better find ways of addressing these breakdowns when suddenly you need to have a deeper understanding of, of the model. So self-documenting tools or tools that have, you know, dynamic help that actually where the help itself is a running program that you can modify. Those are great ideas floating around in niche products and in research that just haven't found their way into, into broad consumer products yet. One of the quotes I really liked that from your presentation was the best way to have a, a good idea is to have a lot of ideas. Right? And, you, and you were talking about uh, one, of, one of my favorite designers, Bill Buxton, um, in terms of his process of, uh, I believe you said, concept, concentric and uh, design, in terms of bringing things together, not concentric. It was... Um, 
Oh, there were the notions of divergent and convergent. Thank you very much. Yeah, activities. that's great. I've been I've been talking yeah. <laughs> to people all day. I have so many words running through my head right now. I'm a little lost, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that idea. And really yeah, so um, that that quote is actually from Linus Pauling, who's not a designer at all. He's a chemist. Okay. Turns out to be a very successful chemist who won the Nobel Prize. Right. And um, at at the core of that quote is really, if you want to get to success, right, you can't just think hard about it and hope for the right thing to strike and then you build it and you're done. It's to get to success, you have to try out a lot of things, maybe five, maybe a dozen, maybe a hundred different things. Architects um, routinely create maybe 200, 300 different drawings um, for, for a building to figure out different directions you could go. Right. And we see some of those ideas of supporting work with multiple alternatives in parallel slowly making their way into tools for graphic design, for static images. So, for example, Photoshop Variations is, is uh, an expression of that idea, that we show you an image and a dozen variations, and, and you decide which one is the right way to go, and then you rinse and, and repeat. Right. Um, so, it's really a fundamental, you know, a core activity in design. It's generating lots of ideas, looking at what you generated and say, well, which one is the best way to move forward or which are the three best ways to move forward? Right. And then you take a step forward and then you reapply the process again. Exactly. Now that we've made one decision, what about the next step? Um, and really our authoring tools should support this, you know, working with a, an ambiguous set of multiple different options throughout the process. Yeah, because the tools really tie us in terms of our capacity to design and to develop, and, and that includes code and, and just gen, gen, design in general, I would say, right? At least that's what I've, I've taken from your talk today. Right, so there are always ways to break a tool and, you know, yeah. piggyback functionality that isn't there anyway. So lots of designers um, do this with, you know, undo, redo. I'll do a little experiment, see if it works out, if not, I unroll my, my stack of commands, right. and you can have different layer comps in Photoshop, etc. So the practice is there, and it kind of gets squished into a tool that doesn't really want to support it. Um, and that's especially true for any tools that, that target interactive behavior. And, and one of the last points from your presentation that I, I really enjoyed is you put up a quote about how you were saying basically, you know, this, this really doesn't look like design. You know, a lot of this, this looks a lot like programming. This doesn't look like a lot like design. And maybe you could elaborate for our listeners a little bit about, about why that quote was there and, and, a, and a sort of a path forward. Yeah, so that I showed that quote when, when showing our tool um, Juxtapose, which, let, which allows you to test multiple different alternatives of programmed interaction designs right. in, in parallel. And, well, sometimes, you know, there's... If you want to test behavior, you have to generate that behavior to be able to test it. So that may involve coding. However, not everyone in your team has to be a coder. So where I think there's really tremendous opportunity going forward is uh, in collaborative design settings where you have different competencies in the same room at the same table. So what tools such as Juxtapose, as we are developing, will allow the technical member in your team to do is to kind of structure a discussion beforehand by, in the tool, laying out different alternatives and generating high-level sliders to modify interactive prototypes 
on the go during the discussion. So that then allows um, you to bring that prototype in and have some domain expert, maybe it's the human factors expert or it is an outside client, sit down and not just test one prototype right. and give feedback, but actually give feedback that can be integrated in modifying the prototype in real time. And that's really the goal we're shooting for. Wonderful. Along with your uh, brilliant presentation today, uh, Bjorn, you're also uh, the editor-in-chief of Ambidextrous magazine. Is that correct? So do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about the magazine? And what yeah, so I'm, I'm one of the editors-in-chief of Ambidextrous magazine. We're a quarterly journal of design affiliated with Stanford's D-School, the, the Institute for Design. Um, we're entirely student-run. However, our readership is primarily professional. Okay. And um, our URL is ambidextrousmag.org. Okay. Uh, we've had a great cast of contributors from the professional design world, such as Don Norman, David Kelly, uh, Bill Mogridge. Wow. And um, our next issue, issue number nine, is going to the printer, I believe, this afternoon. It should be out in, in a couple of weeks. Great. Congratulations on that. That's great. And everything that Bjorn and I have been talking about will be available in the show notes on Boxes and Arrows. So the links over to the D School and, and all the other things we talked about in your presentation. Bjorn, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you just came off the presentation, and I'm sure you've got lots of other things to do. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks.